Welcome to Whistleblowers, episode seven. I'm back here this week with author, journalist, crime investigator, Jennifer Stone. This week's podcast takes us into the drug timeline, Sydney, New South Wales, and the world, the history of the drug timeline, and what it takes to bring down organised crime. We'll also touch on the history of the Hells Angels, and if we get time, we're going to bring you up to date with the murder of the Lynn family. So good morning, Jennifer. How are you? Oh, good morning. I'm well. I'm well. Thanks for having me. You're most welcome. We've been getting quite a lot of interest to the uh, Anchor FM Whistleblowers podcast. People are interested in some of the unsolved murders from previous weeks, it turns out. And uh, you've been, you know, bringing people up to date with uh, your research and uh, you've got some current information and some breakthroughs and this podcast will attempt to uh, bring people up to date with any... Uh, breaking news. We've got some information on the William Tyrrell case during the week, which we might do in coming weeks when we learn more about it. But this week we're going to go straight back to where we left off last week after talking about the banks. Jennifer's done a lot of research on the drug timetable in you know, Sydney, New South Wales and the wider networks. And uh, I've been listening to Jennifer talk about this for a while and uh, um, I'll just let you just talk to us now, Jennifer, about the drug timetable and what your research has told you. Well, we started to look at different areas the drugs were moving. So from King's Cross was feeding out to Bondi, to uh, Bondi Beach, mm. Waterloo and down to Broadway. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the main drug runners would run to Haymarket to get re- refuelled with their eight balls and whatever. And then we started to realise that by following them, we worked out that they were going down to Chinatown and they'd stand at the back of Town Hall Station. So they'd go by train. It was all public transport, catch a pass. Really? Yeah, it was all out in the open. Stand on the corner and wait for one of the chefs. It looked like a chef would run up and do his exchange and then run back to Chinatown. And we started to put this information into police and police did nothing about it. I'd even go around and ask, what are you doing with this? And I got told that Day Street Police Station had it. So I went down there. And that's when I found out about this person I had been following. I call him in my books, The Master. Um, was a protected person. He had on his file, do not pick up. So someone quite high up, whether it was AFP police or Australian Federal Police or New South Wales, had put on his file, do not pick up, which meant the police saw when they found that, that there was other police doing an investigation into him. And this was how this guy was running his drug network. And what era are we talking about? How long ago did you sort of come across this operation and, and that file? Uh, 2012. Okay. And probably in the last 
seven years. He spent five of those in prison on doing the same systems. Right, so, you know, you've um, obviously come across information there and but the police know about this information as part of the investigations and you mentioned something about you, you know, realising that the uh, police may be spending a lot of time and resources around this and what did you discover there? Well, for them to pick up a drug network, they'd actually um, spend money like police would be just watching. Mm. Uh, when I followed the American crime, they mm. called it the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency. Oh, yeah. So it'd be someone would be watching and taking note or filming. Sometimes police cars are left on streets and they're actually just filming and no one's in them. Right. And then they go through the evidence. Uh-huh. So that's one way. The other way is to watch hot spots like different hotels and different restaurants where they'd be going in and out. Mm, mm. Um, some of the ice, you know, you need a cook to mm. make it for the blikies. Yep. So that's how come the restaurants was away because they had the chefs. It's uh, uh, Yeah, I don't know the formulas, but it's made like that. You know, interesting stuff. And um, you, you know, you, you, you are sort of known around... Uh, uh, New South Wales and Australia as a crime writer. You've written a lot of material. You've researched a lot. But a lot of your information you were telling me comes from, you know, being being out there and networking and, uh, you know, chatting to people in cafes and, and pubs and things. And you've been able to put this drug timeline together. And how's that all sort of, you know, come about for you? Well, for this particular drug timetable I've got in front of me, I spent a couple of nights in Glebe in a coffee shop, sitting in a window where there was tables outside and tables inside, and I'd just type away having my coffee. So I'd be silent, but I'd be able to hear the chatter around. And a lot of the drug deals or organising happens at coffee shops. So, and then they go, oh, I'll meet you down the road. or So you get a face. And, the, and once you've got that face, you know who to follow. Till that, you've got nothing. Mm. So we knew that in Broadway, so we had the master getting drugs from Haymarket. And we knew another guy that was down in the Quay. And he was getting them from Haymarket. So I went and stayed around in Glebe, watching from the coffee shops there. And I went to Newtown a bit, but Glebe was more, it was more that end, the hotel that was university, mm. you know, the, they'd yep. get an ounce of whatever it is of ice. Or, and a lot of people would buy a little bit of ice, but then on sell it so mm. that their product didn't cost any money. So then we started to realise that, you know, this particular hotel was dealing a lot of drugs. Mm. So we watched, and I watched during the day. And I'd watch during the day, and sometimes Alex would go and watch overnight. And we noticed that, well, I noticed that the drug dealers would stand right on the curb. Mm. You know where the curb is mm. on your footpath, yeah. you know, and your toes hanging over? They'd stand right there 
And it wouldn't matter if someone was against the wall or hotel, no one had come up to them. Mm. But once they stood there, people would come up to them. So then I went, okay. And it was at the back of the hotel. So they weren't moving drugs in the hotel. It was at the back of it. And then you started to think, well, where would the guy go? And he ended up going down Wattle, Avenue, Wattle, Wattle Street. Street. Yeah. It's a big street in Ultimo in Sydney. Yeah. So we had a few. So, so this was um, what we realised that, you know, if you're on a heroin, you need it every day. On ice, they seem to need it every day until their dealer gets caught and they realise I can live without this. So we started to do a guesstimate, and it took a bit of research to get this. So we started. The guys would come and park in the city road car park, mm. and that's why sometimes this gang was called the city boys. Right. So they'd sell on a few corners. It was only corners, so they weren't working through the pubs. And they weren't going into the pubs. They'd be around the back. But you start to realise that it was to a timetable. So they'd start at 8am in the morning. So if you think about it, 20 caps of 50 and 20 caps of $100 was what we were estimated. And then at 8am, they'd park their car and they'd walk in to Chinatown. So Myrtle and Shepherd Street, then Rose and Shepherd Street, and sometimes on City Road. So we started to write down where they were going and following them on the street, not in the hotels or in the uni car park. It was just on the street. And how they were standing on the footpath was a key to how the people were coming up to them. Okay, so uh, Jennifer's talking today about the uh, City Boys crew and the timeline for drugs in Sydney, New South Wales. And um, interesting uh, timeline developing here. And uh, this crew, you know, the police have brought them down once. And as you mentioned, one of the masters has been... Uh, convicted and been in jail and uh, um, you mentioned the Pokies, uh, Broadway Hotel. Uh, where, where's it all at now and what, what have you noticed in the last few years? Well, they bring down a drug network. So, so this particular drug network, we realised, from Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, was seven different people doing it. Sometimes one person might double up, but there were different cars they'd even come in. A lot of the time there was higher cars. So, like, we couldn't tell the police anything except where they'd start. At 8am, we knew they'd be standing on this footpath and that was how they could follow them. So then we went to watching how they'd walk up. syndicate known as City Boys. The group allegedly supplied heroin and ice in the Redfern area in Sydney's inner city. The two men and two women were arrested as part of Operation Strike Force Petal over 39 offences. Another 40 people have also been charged and remain before the courts. Go on, Jennifer. Police of New South Wales. So we realised that on Waddle Street, the traffic goes one way. Mm. 
so it'd be coming down and they'd walk the other way so even if police saw them they couldn't stop them because they'd run the opposite way I see yeah and then they'd go up to this shell service station yeah. So that was like a terminal park. I know that one. It's on Wattle Street there, yeah. So. Yeah. You know, so all we could give the police were like timetables on when they started. So we worked out it ran 8 to 5. Mm. And it had, at the first lot, there'd be a lot of people come up to this guy. So we knew we had the right person. So we were hoping when the police worked it out. So some had come by bus. Mm-hmm. And then once they sold out, so we estimated that they'd have like 20 caps of, of a $50 one mm-hmm. of heroin and 20 caps of 100 mm. And then from there, once they'd run out of that, they'd walk into Chinatown for a pickup and then they'd come back. So their car would be sitting there all day. And this, as you've just heard, we, your City Boys crew was brought down and uh, we just heard from Channel 9 News broadcast there, the crime gang, uh, the police thought they had, uh, you know, broken this network and that it was gone. But Jennifer doesn't give up so easily. Jennifer, what have you found out about this timetable and this way of operating? Well, it seems to be a pattern, so it's like the master plan. So the police bring them down one week and then somebody else starts up another. And that seems to be how they survive. And so this could go on and on. On. uh... And it's like the police report it as they've caught the snake. But they never get the heart. So in mythology of Asians about the snake, it's got lots of heads, Mm. but it's only got one heart. And that's what the the public is not demanding the police bring down the heart of of the operation because they think, wow, you've caught this person and 39 and commercial use on drugs. They won't get out there and be running again. But then you realise, well, they'll get another six or seven people up and the police will only catch four of them and then it goes on and on. It goes on and on, folks. And uh, the interesting thing and the difficult thing for police is that they too move on. So you may get young, uh, motivated and conscientious minds coming in and solving this puzzle that you and your colleagues have been on top of for a while and provided all this information to help police but they too move on so we've got this constant flow of new faces coming in which probably in a way helps the syndicate survive because so and so's moved on it's uh, back on again we can keep going police they're following certain drug runners and they think well we've caught them they don't go back to check that it's actually come down now in terms of the heart, the heart that's uh, mm-hmm. a big that's a big one, and it hasn't yet been achieved as far as we know. But uh, without mentioning names and to protect your own uh, resources, um, are you able to sort of tell us what may need to happen? Um, we don't want to sort of incriminate any names here, but it's obviously a bigger picture. Yeah, well. We took that research once we worked it out 
And we started going around different pubs in the Redfern and Waterloo area. And we found opposite a pub sometimes or or diagonally behind a police station would be a main unit dealing drugs. And Alex would sometimes go in there to say, I'm wanting to... Just to see whether they had a lot of stock or a little. And so we found this home unit. We estimated it was 5 to 10 million in the last 12 months. And when Alex came out, he said to me, the coffee table was full of cocaine. And I went, wow. And he said, no, it was everywhere. He said, it was just like the guys off his face. So uh, that, the, the astounding thing about that is um, the value. I'm still trying to calculate this, but just we, we might come back to the drugs themselves in another episode and talk about the uh, sorts of money that, that's uh, being made by people. Uh, you mentioned the size of a boiled egg, an egg that you might have for breakfast, or and you know egg in the carton. In regards to heroin, what did you discover there? Well. That would be brought in to Australia. This is pure. Pure heroin. Not the sort of heroin that one might buy on the street. No. See, the product's chopped and and added to, and that gets the amount of the volume. So a kilo of heroin might have started off from an egg-size pure heroin. I see. And that egg-size pure heroin coming into the country would make the person how much money would that be worth okay so on the streets of la uh, when i did my research back and it hasn't changed that much because i've just done some research updating my figures lately it's sixteen thousand to buy on the streets of la and then normally someone would bring that in on them so women carry it in their female parts and it's all sealed so they don't get it and they're not they're not um swallowing it so there's less likelihood of them getting sick or showing effects and if somebody many of them are models flying in and out from town to town so so that that particular way of bringing it in so here in Australia a pure egg is worth 250,000 $250,000 is the sort of money. I think we'll come back to do a whole podcast episode on these the drugs and the value because you've done uh, extensive work on that and the actual qualities of the drugs and the history of that and also legalising and how we could look at legalising some of these drugs to um, put an end or reduce the amount of organised crime. In, in New South Wales. Jennifer, do you want to just finish up talking about the timeline um, and the gangs with, with anything else before we finish up this uh, conversation on the timeline? Oh, you mean on the drugs timeline? Yes. Um, well, have we covered it all? Uh, look, the Bondi run was a girl driving a little red sports car and the police couldn't pick her up. That was like takeaway orders, dial a, dial a delivery and she would deliver. Was she part of the same network or different? Different. Hmm. 
but they were you can tell whether they're from the same um, supply by the product mm. so sometimes it'd be more gray or brown or mm-hmm. um, and I got that information through Alex asking around at pubs mm. and he'd walk up to guys and say you know is it good from this guy or you know, I'm new in town, can you tell me? Mm. Um, he's more that sort of, mm. um, I stand out like dog's ball, says yes. the straighty 180. <laughs> yes, you do. You're well known and quite straight looking. You're an author and, uh, you know, so, yeah, we, we, uh, we well, you know, we could go on about this drug timetable. That's, that's about 20 minutes of information. Is there anything else you'd like to add about that? No, but it's interesting that the police never look very close to a police station for a main supply source. Well, there you go, folks. We've uh, covered a lot there this morning on the drug time table and the city boys crew. Uh, Jennifer, um, oh, you mentioned the poker machines. Do you want to finish up yeah. about what your thoughts are there with poker machines? Well, the poker machines have been a big thing throughout the Woods Royal Commission. They talked about them as a way of cleaning funds. But lately, what's been happening, and we've only just had COVID and it's reopened up, so there's lots of drug money that needs washing. And as uh, as I've said before, they don't, they're not dealing the drugs from the hotels. They're utilising those sort of businesses to clean them. But the hotels are not really noticing how they're doing it. So they go in and they put their cash, you know, 50s and 100s into a poker machine, sit there for a bit, run a few times, then they call the bill and say, we've got to go. They might have a girlfriend turn up and say, come on, let's go. And then they get a cheque made out, say if it's over 3000 or 2000 some of them it might be $1,000 and they just write out a cheque from the hotel to them, but that's clean the funds. Okay, folks, there we go. That's whistleblowers for episode seven on the drug timetable. I can see that some of the things that Jennifer's talked about this morning are going to get you um, people will be playing the podcast and sending you emails and messages asking you questions. And we'll come back to this topic, I'm sure, because... Uh, that story of the Bondi woman and uh, others. Jennifer's got so many anecdotes like that which uh, I find highly interesting to listen to and it's sort of like we get bombarded with news on commercial media every night and we don't often hear what's behind the story that we get. So that's the idea of whistleblowers is just to bring you up with uh, some of the ins and outs from a person that's doing uh, years and years of uh, on-the-street research uh, in Jennifer Stone. So stay tuned, folks. We're coming back shortly with uh, Episode 8, which will be the history of the Hells Angels, and we'll touch on the Lynn family murders. That's podcast, Whistleblowers, Episode 7. Well, I hope you enjoyed it. Please like us on Anchor FM or your favourite podcast platform. Welcome to Whistleblowers, Crimes of the Heart, The Lynn Family Murders, Sydney, New South Wales, Australia, 
A little introduction. My name is Greg Kerr. The Lynn family murders occurred in North Epping, New South Wales, on the 18th of July, 2009. The victims were a business owner, news agency proprietor, Min Lin, his wife, Yun Lin, their sons, Henry, Terry and Yun Lin's sister, Irene Lin. The family were bludgeoned to death. Min Lin's sister, Kathy, discovered the bodies. I'm here with Jennifer Stone, crime writer, investigative journalist, and now successful crime podcast producer, bringing to you information from the fringes of unsolved crime, solved crimes, wrongly convicted crimes, and information that she has researched over decades in both Sydney, Australia, New South Wales and the international community. Good morning, Jennifer. How are you today? Oh, good morning. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. You're doing a great job. We're getting lots of uh, hits and uh, replays of your previous work. And today you're going to bring uh, to us the work that you've done on the tragic uh, Lynn family murders that shocked New South Wales uh, way back in 2009. So Jennifer, you were uh, on the case with this one. Uh, why did you want to talk about this uh, particular case uh, and what can you tell us? Well, Robert Z at the time had the perfect alibi. He was at home in bed with a witness, his wife, Kathy Lynn, who was the sister of Midland, who was murdered. So he had an alibi. I actually went to the court case and started to catch up with Kathy Lynn. And I realised by talking to her, she really thought her husband was innocent. So I started to go through the reports and going to the trial to see, well, what was missed? What could have been there? You've got to remember, Min Lynn had seen a massive robbery from the club across the road. And to my way of thinking, that was a reason why someone could get murdered. But to slain the whole family has happened before. We go through the Defoe murders. That was the whole family. But the eldest child survived. Well, this one, the eldest child survived. But she wasn't at home that day. Why did... Uh, sorry, how long before the Lynn family murders did that robbery take place that she witnessed? Oh, maybe... Yeah, just months, six months maybe. So you began thinking about this and uh, realising that there may be something else happening here. Um, so go on, you've uh, developed yeah, this so story. I started to go to the... So for me to do the research, I write a book. By, by writing a book, I can put the timelines together 
and see where there's some coincidences. So normally I go to the court case if it's a case like this or I go out to the site, which I did do. I actually went out to Epping about four or five times, going over the evidence, watching from the news agents what Min Ling could see and thinking, well, what is there? Um, and then going over the information that Cathy had given me and, and seeing that she really believed it. I started to think there was more about it. So I did some research and I got contacted by a guy who actually had done some research himself and he linked into another person called allegedly Robert Z using the same name mm -hmm. and moving drugs. And he would fly in and fly out. But the drugs were getting delivered to the same news agents. So we had a link. And uh, yes, yeah, so that's interesting. Uh, that's a pretty big, uh, you know, link that you've got there. And uh, not many people would probably consider that the two could be drawn together. But uh, it it goes further. What happened uh, then? Well, they did get. Well, the courts believe they got justice after two thousand seven hundred and thirty-five days. Seven years, four trials, a guilty verdict came on Robert Z. But was it the right Robert Z? was a question that goes through my mind. So as the... finally moved this morning from a house just 200 metres from the murder scene. Today is a very significant day for the New South Wales Police Force, for the Lynn family, and lastly, the homicide squad. In July 2009, five family members were found dead in their North Epping home. 45-year-old Min Lin, his 43-year-old wife Lily, her sister and two other family members were all bashed to death in their bedrooms. A very dedicated group of investigators have never given up their pursuit of investigating and solving this atrocious murder. After an investigation that took police to the US and China, the arrest was made in the very next street. Min Lin's 47-year-old brother-in-law, Robert G, has been charged with all five murders. So, Jennifer, um, this is what the public has learned and, you know, the sentencing went down. But you were out there and you're considering that there were other connections so, here. Yeah, so I was going to the court case and I got called up by a guy, um, so Justice Fullerton was bringing down a verdict, and I got called up by a guy to have a meeting in January. So it was about the 12th of January, 2017, and I went out mm -hmm. to um, Rouse Hill Way, Kellyville Way, and he had a lot of research that I interlinked to on Facebook and he wanted to talk to me face to face and actually get some of my research. So, and he was actually a government official and what he was doing was quite highly illegal talking to me without any basis but just to share research. 
So it took the jury eight days of deliberation after a six-month trial, mm-hmm. marking Z one of Australia's worst mass murderers. Now this is, they've been slain, they've been bashed. Um, it wasn't gunshots. Mm. It was a very personal attack, mm. you could say. Mm. And that's when people, you know, they look um, for someone close by. Mm. Uh, Robert Z. At the time, he was a doctor over in China, mm-hmm. so and he knew some of the martial arts. So it came together that he would know how to do that sort of... But when you look at him, he wasn't built like a gym junkie. No. Um, he was a slender man, and you'd see Kathy driving a lot. You wouldn't see him driving as much. Mm. And his English wasn't very good. He had an interpreter for most of the trial, you could see. So then the research came in that this stain 91, and that's before the courts at the moment, that they're going through it, whether it could have been um, there prior. So they used stain 91 from his own garage as a reason why he did the murders. Right, so there we go. Uh, as we see it in the media, and extensive police resources were spent on this case, Crimes of the Heart, the Lynn family murder. Let's take you back and hear a little bit more of that information that we were presented with the day that uh, Lynn was convicted. conjecture and uh, confusion amongst some sections of the public. This goes right Mm -hmm. to uh, Parliament House in in Sydney and politicians and senior police involved. Uh, Did they consider that information that you're talking about? And this stain in the garage seems like an important piece of evidence, but nevertheless, the whole case seemed to be pinned on it. Yes, the stain was. See, the theory that the police were using, allegedly Robert Z tranquilised his wife, got out of bed, walked across to the Lynn family, murdered the whole family, came back, got changed in the garage, and that's how the blood transfer happened. Was it right or was it was a theory? That's the thing. And then the blood links on it, they matched partial to the two sons and to the brother. But you've got to remember, Kathy Lynn lives in this house. Her parents were the same as Min Lynn. 
So her DNA would be very similar too and was never matched. The crimes of the heart can be very complicated and police uh, have to really spend time looking at all possibilities. But they've gone ahead and this man was convicted, Robert. And uh, you're saying that he's currently putting in an appeal. Uh, his English is limited, so obviously translation would have occurred in the courtroom. You were there in the courtroom. Um, what, what's currently happening with this case and what was your opinion of Robert Lee and Kathleen? Well, I actually, you know, I stand back and look at all the evidence. So though the jury said on that day he was guilty, you've got to realise that they were fed the information from the um, experts that this stain 91 is a huge um, clincher. I actually went out there to the site to see how far it was to walk across and look at his framework of a person and think, okay, even if he had a hammer in his hand to whack the people, it was murdering three adults and two children. It was a lot. And also, when you go through the information, there were two size shoes where there were blood stains and they were sand shoes, though they did find a similar type of shoe at um, the Z house because they used to leave their shoes out the front on a book stand at the front door. So it was easy for someone to set him up because it wasn't even inside the house. And do we know with his martial arts background, did he have any history of aggression or incidents that we can, can track or the police could have attracted? No, there was no... Incidents. Actually, the police actually put um, hidden cameras in the house once he was charged and they watched for a while and he did do something that they showed in court to um, the daughter and that was really like, was it right? Was it, you know, they were trying to figure out why Brendan Lynn survived, why the daughter survived. And they made out that allegedly Robert C had a crush on her or that sort of thing. So the whole thing was they've made their own movie role up, you know, movie for the evidence and fed to the jury exactly that. So how long has Robert now been incarcerated and do you have any idea of what is the information coming forward in the appeal? Uh, the information is under Stain 91. I don't know whether they're touching on epping the RSL robbery or not, um, but I did link into that when I did my research because it was right across the road. And Min Lin was supposed to take the stand to do with that trial within the coming weeks before the murder. So there's a piece of information that the police have looked into, but whistleblowers will take you... Uh, and bring you up to date on this case as information comes to Jennifer. Uh, Epping is a uh, suburb in the northwest of Sydney, uh, maybe half an hour to 40 minutes drive. It's a beautiful, leafy uh, suburb. Uh, some could say middle class. There's quite a lot of money in that area. And the you know social club, the RSL, was it, Jennifer, across the road was was robbed and Ming witnessed this. Do you have any details of what he actually witnessed and do we know if 
anybody uh, made contact with him, uh, he said he was about to give information in a court case in regards to this matter. So I know that Min Lin saw the robbery at the Epping RSL, which is opposite the news agency. Um, questions were brought about by the Australian Federal Police. Um, they caught a guy linking to a Nigerian man working out of the same letterboxes at the news agents. Um, but I also link into another guy who was actually known as allegedly Robert Z. So I kind of thought, had he taken on, um, you know, that sort of thing. And then I've, I must have asked Kathy Lynn here, because I've seen that, did Robert Z do any martial arts? And the answer came back, no, none at all. He didn't look like that sort of framework. So the information from Cathy is that he wasn't a violent, aggressive man at all. And in fact, martial arts um, or the different varieties of martial arts are actually the opposite to what, <clears throat> you know, people might perceive as, you know, aggressive men that would bludgeon people to death. They're actually about uh, peace and, uh, you know, universal spirit, more uh, uh, the opposite to what someone who... Yeah, someone who's doing a violent murder would be. So considering that that doesn't fit in with the line of um, pursuit by the police, you uh, robbery, uh, you know, witnessed by a community figure. We heard he was linked to local politicians. He was a community man, the owner of a community newspaper. The locals loved him. You know, one would think that the wider family were similar people, you know, mm -hmm. law-abiding peaceful people. This doesn't seem to fit in. No, and it's ripped the family apart because Kathy Lynn's parents won't talk to her. So it's really ripped them apart. Do you know if the police were able to get behind the robbery? Now, after he was murdered, uh, Z was murdered... Um, well, that was something that this other guy that wanted to see me for morning tea... He linked into the Epping RSL and to the letterboxes on the newsagents. And I even had to go there and check it all out because I hadn't, I hadn't realised that those letterboxes were linked to the newsagents. I just thought they were to do with the building above. So the, letter, the post office boxes were part of the actual newsagent yeah. building and um, when we sat, when we're talking about this, it's the uh, the postal organisation in Sydney. No, not to do with Australia Post. Right. They're private letterboxes, so people can hire them and then get their mail delivered there. Yes. And then people come up there, but they're perfect scenario for a drop off of a drug and then pick it up out of the same box. And that's when going around and around and around and asking questions, I started to realise that that was happening. All right, and you are saying that the police have information about this in terms of Min, yeah, Min so, Lin? So it was a armor guard truck robbery and that Min Lin found. And I couldn't get much out except... What I started to realise that in the gangs, I had a picture of a gang, you know, um, clubhouse picture, and it had one person in a blue shirt, 
one in a yellow and one in a red. And all the rest were in uniforms. That particular three people hold particular positions within the gang. What I noticed was Roger Rogerson wore a gold jacket. There was another guy who linked into the armour guard who used to wear a red suit. And the thing I missed was the blue. I couldn't figure out. So when this trial was happening, the police said, can you send your information in about the coloured T-shirts to the suit colours? Because that's of interest. Okay, there you go, folks. Whistleblowers taking you behind the scenes in the Lynn family murders. And there's an appeal about to go through the courts here in New South Wales. So Jennifer will bring us up to date with developments in this case. Thank you for listening today. Jennifer, did you want to add anything else at this stage about your work in the Lynn family murders? Yeah, the robbery of the Epping RSL, that money just vanished. No one actually has been able to find that money at all. And, you know, what's interesting is that the, the cars are insured. So for Armagard, they don't lose out. But then if this is, you know, you start to think these people that are robbing it have inside information to know what time they're going to be there to just turn up and go and catch them as they're releasing the money to walk into the club. You know, I started to realise that when I went through all those cases of armor guard robberies, there was $6 million went missing. At the same time, Hell's Angels paid $6 million to Bandito's Parramatta chapter. Coincidences. Coincidences in the Lynn family tragic murders. Stay tuned to Whistleblowers. And this case will bring you updates when the appeal starts and more information as it unfolds. So thank you for listening today. Please add us on your podcast platform, like us, and stay tuned. We'll be back next week for another exciting episode of Whistleblowers with Jennifer Stone. My name is Greg Kerr, and thank you for listening today to A Crime of the Heart and the Lynn Family Murders. So that robbery. Welcome to Whistleblowers. Hell's Angels. The history. The connections. And the links. Jennifer Stone. investigator, researcher, author and investigative journalist. We're very lucky to have her here in Sydney, Australia. 
Yeah, her research has taken her back to the history of the Hells Angels, the international connections, the development of the Hells Angels and outlaw bikey gangs in Australia, their links to King's Cross and organised crime. Welcome to Whistleblowers, folks. How are you, Jennifer? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for having me. We're starting with this beautiful country and western music from America. It sounds so innocent. It's the Hells Angels Forever song. Uh, We're going to let you go now with the microphone. What can you tell us about Hells Angels and why did you choose this as a topic for a podcast? Well, Hells Angels and the links to King's Cross are of interest. You know, many told me King's Cross didn't link into the Hells Angels. Abe Saffron had nothing to do with the Hells Angels. And then I saw a picture of a grandma known as the grandma of um, King's Cross. And she had, back in 1971, a sign saying on a property of Hells Angels. So it was just a history, a photograph that proved to me that there were links back then. History is part of the thing where you can study the crimes and many have been studied by um, Royal Commission. So, like, then you've got a timeline. So this was the alleged criminal activity to do with King's Cross linking to America. And it was one another. You know, we had 22 uh, Darlinghurst Road linking to Bernie Horton and he came out from Texas after the assassination of John F. Kennedy. So it was a couple of years later. But before that, we had Abe Saffron, was quite renowned for being the boss. He was well-established, wasn't he? He was well-entrenched in the King's Cross and New South Wales network. So go on. And he loved it. He had working girls and they all got their heroin and no one said boo. And he had a wife and he had a girlfriend. And he'd spend time at both houses. It was quite an open relationship, I think. And he'd have the police minister come for afternoon tea and go over things. And you started to think, well, how does this, you know, how can someone that's so supposed to be such a criminal mind, allegedly a criminal mind, he he was only charged on tax evasion, Um, And many of the big ones that were caught in America have only ever been charged on tax evasion. Right. So it's quite interesting. So there was a connection from America there. You mentioned after the JFK murders. And uh, uh, how did it develop from there, um, you know, in terms of organised crime and the Hells Angels? Well, the Hells Angels is just a bikey club. And... You know, they say they're the one percenter. But the links I had in 1975 was to a company called the Hells Angels Limited. So it kind of fitted together. And then I found that same company linked to USA, to UK, to Hong Kong. And some of this research I couldn't get to being from Australia. I had to find other people that were conspiracy theorists for some of them 
or very good researchers to link in. Mm, so the links began forming. The more you spoke and met people and you were able to weed out, you know, what was a little bit ridiculous, but there was these common threads that actually you could see here in Australia on the street were real, were true, and, yeah. you know, it was all happening. Yes. Well, in 1963, we had uh, 22nd of November, the assassination of John F. Kennedy, and by the time Jackie got back to the White House, Anassas was there and he stayed in the White House. Um, now, that's a link to Stripperama Club back in King's Cross days because his sister was married to the manager. So, and it was like, whoa, it was America to Sydney and, and Anassas, would it be any link? But then when you go through the evidence... There'll be files missing or some evidence that's just disappeared. And the brain of John F. Kennedy disappeared. Right. So it was interesting that, you know, this gang collects trophies mm. and that would be classified as a trophy to get. Well, there we go, folks. So stay tuned. We're going to continue. Uh, as a uh, citizen of New South Wales and Sydney, Australia, this is the sound that, you know, living in the city, you'd often hear at different times of the day uh, or night, large gangs of motorcycles. Coming through. King's Cross, coming through the city, uh, these high-powered motorcycles with the men and women on, you know, board, uh, sh showing some sort of enthusiasm for the lifestyle they were living, hanging around in gangs and groups and uh, collectively looking so innocent. But what you're saying is there was other things happening below the surface. But not all of them were involved. Only just a few. You know, in King's Cross, really, in the history of it, it's normally just been one or two dealers. You know, the police will bring down the ones that come in on a weekend from the western suburbs. They're the ones that are not noticed normally. So they, they know the regulars to the ones that... And that's how, when you keep emailing the police, they eventually create a strike force to go get the guys that that particular police station won't get. And that's what I've been able to do. And so, you know, you mentioned Abe Saffron and, uh, you know, American, uh, well, we can only say alleged American underworld figures arriving in Sydney after the death of JFK. How did it evolve and uh, did we see some sort of link then with uh, the, this particular uh, motor, outlaw motorcycle gang? Well, the coincidence... When the first Hells Angels Motorcycle Club was founded in Fontaine, San Bernardo area in the USA, was 1948. We had 1948 Abe Saffron returned to Sydney and acquired pubs in Sydney. Before that, he had been working in Balmain and he had Lenny McPherson as a book, bookie. Um, and one of his runners was um, Dawn Fraser. And she'd put the bets on and she was the runner. Ah. So, so, and if you read her, the book on her life, it talks about that. There's that real Balmain inner west yes. connection. Yes. So then we had 1948. 
1960, Hells Angels was documented as growing. We had 1966, the Beaumont children disappeared. And many of these unsolved murders just build a coincidence of, you know, would they link to some underneath power? So 1970, when Ada Nelson started the Now newspaper in King's Cross, and that stopped when she disappeared in 1975. John Abraham was born 1970 by some reports, 68 by others. Then 72, we had Victoria Street development, and then we needed um, the payment for building, you know, it's huge buildings that mm. got built along there. We had 1973, the Nugan Bank started and collapsed in 1980. Mm. And that was a link to America mm. from Michael J. Han, but they all went to Bernie Horton. Wow. So that was in the previous episode on the banks. We mentioned the banks and uh, uh, Bernie Horton seemed to be the link. Yes, to Texas, right. to Dallas. Yeah. Then we had um, 15th of April 1974, we had Patricia Gallia, wife of King's Cross identity Bruce Gallia, murdered in LA, alleged robbery. Now, the California Court of Appeal was still hearing this case 30 years later. Wow. There's still no, no sign. Folks, this sound uh, is common on our streets now. These bikes are everywhere, and the Harley Davidson bike is the you know, signature of the Hells Angels movement. Increasingly, from 1973, Sydney-siders would hear these uh, pistons bouncing around and when they're together in a group, it's a formidable sound. It does sound like the army's arriving or it stops people in the street and turns heads. It's a wonder that they can get away with so much, un you know undercover, organised, but maybe that's what it is. As you said before, it's in plain sight. Yes, they're hiding in plain sight. And a lot of the ones that are on the bikes, they're not doing drugs. But at the moment, the bikes have come in again to King's Cross in the last week or so as though they're wearing their leathers but no patches. So though it's illegal to wear your patches and congregate, in more than three people, I think it is, um, under the consorting rules, uh, that they're still doing it. They've just got plain leathers and having zooped up, you know, fantastic-looking motorbikes. And, uh, look, you know, uh, King's Cross, for those that don't know, was once the cosmopolitan, you know, uh, nightclub centre of Sydney, as Jennifer mentioned, going right back to the early 1900s and before. But, you know, it became notorious. It's gone through its dark periods and we've had a lot of legislation brought in to try and uh, constrict the nightclub sort of movement to the point that now some people in Sydney think that King's Cross is dead. However, you know, having driven around there recently myself in the last year or two, I've seen it die. But even though the... Um, a corporate world is moving in, the unit blocks, and even young families are living in that area. There still exists uh, a um, nucleus, if you like, 
There's yes. uh, businesses and uh, I don't think they'll ever be able to... It may take generations before they achieve what they are attempting to do, but, you know, the bikey gangs are back. Uh, the mm. police are certainly very active in the area still. Uh, it's still a meeting place. It's still... Uh, a place in, in Sydney that has become the place to go to for, might I say, colourful, colourful characters. Yeah, well, the, there was a link back in the history to the X's. So there's the X formed by Darlinghurst Road and Victoria Street in King's Cross. And it was well known, meet you at the X. But there's an X in Newtown and there's an X at Queen's Cross. So Charing Cross. So it's interesting that these three crosses were renowned for the drug deals, you know. But we had 1975, we had the end of the Vietnam War. But see, the Vietnam War was how the drugs were coming into Australia. Even to other places in America, they were coming in in the coffins. Uh, there's been many a movie made about the coffins were full of drugs. Right. And there might have been a few um, dead bodies within that of lost soldiers, but a lot of it was the movement of the drugs and no one seemed to open a coffin. Do you have any evidence of that happening in Australia or was that sort of a Hollywood movie thing? Mm, more a Hollywood movie thing, but... I can understand it did happen. So back to the Hells Angels, you know, so much on the internet and so many movies being made, they still exist despite right-wing, conservative, even uh, organised religions in America and Australia feeling that all of their activity is wrong. You mentioned the patches taken off. These guys and the women, they seem to... Uh, persist. They're very well organised and they've got a lot of money behind them. So where are we at today with um, Hells Angels and King's Cross and the wider network? Well, they say 1966 was when the dollar changed on Australia Day. It was um, when uh, Prime Minister Mm -hmm. Harold Holt took over, Um, but he was disappeared in December 1967. Mm. So what happened was our money here in Australia changed from pounds to dollars, Mm. the decimal, and they reckon the black market got stuck with a lot of pounds Mm. because it happened quite quickly. And that was the reason why some say Harold Holt went missing. Wow. Interesting stuff. And the uh, Hells Angels today are stronger than ever. Uh, Their, you know, membership is growing. It appeals to a lot of young men who, you know, may be interested in, well, motorbikes, but the lifestyle that, you know, organised, they call them outlaw motorcycle gangs bring. There's certainly a, a large number of these guys who are hard-working, innocent folk as well. Um, what, what's happening today with the Hells Angels and uh, do you have any information or names that might be associated with them that have been brought down? Uh, the Hells Angels. Well, the when I first went to King's Cross, I got told the international chapter um, president was Felix Lyle. International for the whole world. Why would that be, I thought? you think it would be in America. Mm. 
That's what I thought. Mm. Not in Australia. Yeah. I know he's been deported now from Australia, but it just was like, how did he get that position? Mm-hmm. You know, like he, he wasn't on many people's radar mm-hmm. when I started to realise I had a link to him. So we had 1980 was the time when Hell's Angels Nomads started in Melbourne and nomads were formally identified separately in Melbourne. Now that's a long way from Sydney. Mm. But then you find out as you read the history on the nomads, you you don't see Hell's Angels nomads in Australia. No. Um, not even on their logo and that. But the nomads link into a chapter of the banditos. And lately the nomads have linked into the rebels by what I've been... So it's this common thread mm. back to the nomads. Mm. And though, you know, the the media has reported about Sam Ibrahim having a lifetime membership of the nomads, um, it's just one link after another. Mm. It's a coincidences, but it's no reason why to deregister them or anything like that. Uh, they tried to deregister the businesses of the Hills Angels Limited. So they set up companies in 1975 and the tax office won a court battle in 1984 over a disputed tax bill of 89000 The firm has since been dormant. It was deregistered in 1989 and the Hills Angels Limited was deregistered. But we still got the asterisk, the Hells Angels Limited, to Sydney as still existing. And they owned a property in Old Guildford, which for a coincidence was where Sam Ibrahim used to live. Folks, uh, organised crime. The bikey gangs. A brief history. Brought to you by Jennifer Stang and her research. So Jennifer, uh, you've touched on Guildford, an innocent western Sydney suburb once. Now Granville, Guildford, old Guildford, uh, waves of new immigration and families from often war-torn backgrounds and disaffected young people uh, being attracted to the gangster lifestyle. Because of the money. They've become very smart and they've enlisted professional people even, lawyers, bankers, financiers. Uh, it's all part of the system. So. And when you talk to people in the industry, in their industry, they call it a business. They say, I work for the company. You know, and many people way back used to call the Freemasons a company. Mm. The company Mm. was how it was referred to. And that was where my mind went straight away when I got told about it. You know, one one drug dealer, I call him Mouse in my books, he declared it was a a legal business he was running Mm. to me. He said, the police can't touch me. Mm. But they did, eventually, (laughs) once he got pulled up and realise that he had been exposed. It's quite delusional, really, isn't it, you know? Um, But uh, so organised crime is, you know, 
fronting with legitimate businesses, you're saying? Yes. Yes, so they're cleaning the funds and then they're using it. What sort of businesses are they fronting with? You know, like gymnasiums or anything? It's virtually anything. Many drug dealers will get in there to make a quid Mm. and then move out. But the ones that seem to stay are the ones that I started to realise that this Asian grandmother had something over because they weren't having the money. They kept saying their money was in the business. Um, they didn't get, you know, them. They, they were living maybe in hotels for months on end, or large apartments, you know, in service buildings, but never got the money to buy a property and things like that. Because the the police go and grab the houses as collateral and collect the cars, the Lamborghinis and the BMWs and that. And it's only once they start posting the photos up on Facebook that you go, oh, I've got a photo now. I send that to the cops and the cops go, okay. We go and knock on the door and say, how did you buy that? And that was the same way as Abe Saffron got done. Well, there we go, folks. Whistleblower is taking you briefly into the world of Organised crime and the outlaw bikey gangs in Australia. Uh, There will be more developments in this area as well. In the New South Wales media recently, we have seen some big businesses come down with bikey links. Jennifer, did you want to finish up with any other information about this topic? In 1997, we had Sam Ibrahim become the president of the Nomads Granville chapter. You know, 1998, we had Hells Angels North Crew Adelaide star. So it's been a slow accumulation of one chapter after another. It wasn't a mass all over Australia. And they, though these chapters, you know, what funds them? Well, it's only when there's a lot of people that have not got a job and they don't have Centrelink that you start to think, okay, where are they getting their money from? And that's what the police under Strike Force Raptor started to look at. But some of the main key players, even Raptor wasn't bringing down. And I kept pushing again. And then I realised um, a few years ago that there was a Strike Force Odin came. And that's observe, detect, intercept and neutralise. And that links to the United Nations to Interpol and somewhere where I had been sending my research because of the links to America I had John F. Kennedy assassination to Australia and was I right or wrong I don't know but it still was was this main theory of how they were moving their money from Australia to overseas and then you know, where was I going wrong? Some other journalists have followed that up and told me when I went into this 7-Eleven shop and saw a journo sitting there having breakfast one day and we were going to go to Downing Centre Court. He said to me, I've been following your research up. You've missed. So it was the money transfer box where you put in the cash and deposit it and they send the money overseas. It was inside the 7-Elevens where they were going. 
and I had missed that because I was too scared to go inside to look at what they were doing. It was just like, I'd just tell the cops, they'd go to that sh that 7-Eleven, you know. So some of my research, like, I was allowing the police to get involved mm -hmm. and I had to stay out of the way. I knew that and I was trying hard. Well, folks, I'm speechless. Earth-shattering stuff from Jennifer Stone. More to come. This is Podcast 7. Uh, I'll need to reflect on some of this information and I'll be back next week to ask Jennifer some more questions about this. Uh, we've got another interesting episode coming up on the Lynn family murders. So, Jennifer, thanks for today and uh, thanks for you know, covering so much territory in a short space of time. You've got more there. Do you want to finish off with anything before we go? Yeah, well, in 2011, the Hells Angels bought Bandido's Parramatta chapter, and that was of interest to me because of the links to Nomads when I linked into Bandido's. But, yes, the, the whole thing, it's just... The police need the real evidence. They need to catch them with the drugs. They need to catch them with the money. It's, that's why there's so many people getting caught driving their cars mm. because in that way they've got the cash, they've got the drugs, then they can go and raid their houses. So it's quite interesting how they're doing it. Very interesting. And thanks again for today, Jennifer. I thoroughly enjoyed that. My name's Greg Kerr. <laughs> Please subscribe to our podcast series, Whistleblowers. It's getting more and more interesting each week and uh, Jennifer's got so much information we could go on for years. So we're going to bring it to you in bite-sized pieces. This has been very interesting. We'll be back shortly with another episode of Whistleblowers. Mm.